Welcome to The Pre-Work, a limited podcast series about being in relationship with one another. Part one of this podcast focuses on the somewhat divergent ways BIPOC and white folks can prepare to go on an equity journey together, while part two tackles justice and equity, but for queer and straight folks. I'm your host, your narrator, and sometimes panelist, Crystal Cheatham, alongside Melvin Bray, who serves as our interviewer. When I was in grade school, I felt sorry for people who needed glasses. After all, my eyes were bionic. I could spot destinations full minutes before my parents could in the car. But in my 30s, things started to change. My optometrist told me I needed bifocals. And as a 30-something woman trying to date, I absolutely refused. It was fine for a while. Then the day came. I could no longer read street signs from the driver's seat of my car, especially at night. I finally broke down and bought two pairs of glasses, one for distance and another one for reading. What's interesting is that I had forgotten the level of detail one could see at a distance. With my new glasses, I was clocking the veins of the leaves on a tree at 30 feet. Then it dawned on me. How many people had I put in danger because I was too pig-headed to wear glasses while driving, too self-assured in my own reasoning to allow for some assistance, a lens if you will. There are many things you will come to understand in the midst of your equity journey that you have no way to make heads or tails of right now. Fortunately, you have the opportunity to benefit from the experience of a few who have walked the path already and can give you a new lens for the ever-changing landscape ahead. Listen to them. Let them help you. None of us has to do things alone. Hanging out with Melvin Bray today are Tori Williams-Douglas, creator of White Homework, and Sterling Freeman, co-founder of Counterpart Consulting. And joining us today is Sharon Groves, Vice President of Partner Engagement for Auburn Seminary. How do we develop those corrective lenses that help us begin to see the things that we otherwise would find hard to see? Um, One of the things I often hear from persons just beginning an equity journey, particularly folks who have been historically privileged, but not exclusively, is the phrase, I just don't see why I have to do X, Y, Z. Assuming you've encountered some variation of the same, what are some of the things you've heard people struggle to see? and to understand about equity when they're starting out? I think one big issue that I come across frequently is the fact that um, tolerating people is not the same as affirming them, right? It's like, if I put up with you, <laughs> yes. if I don't harass you, if I don't use racial slurs, then I'm good, right? You know, one thing that a lot of white folks can resonate with, as you were talking about, is being bullied in school, right? If you've ever been in a space where you were merely being tolerated, like that doesn't feel so good, you know? So um, I definitely try to kind of pull people in with that just because even though I think white folks have a lot of experiences that where they have gone through some emotionally harmful situation, right? And so just being able to say like, okay, look at how you felt then and then try to apply that to race, right? Try to apply that to gender and sexuality. Um, Sure, sure. And so being able to kind of tap back into that situation, especially, you know, especially if it's like when you were actually like literally a child, I feel like is, can be really powerful for some folks. 
Yeah, Melvin, one of the things that comes up for me um, that people struggle with is trying to see racism as a power system, right? Mm. And trying to distinguish how it is operating uh, based on a personal, interpersonal level versus the sort of structural, right, and institutional level. And I, I think a lot of folks, particularly white brothers and sisters, who are on their racial equity journey and entering into this work, one of the things that happens is uh, there is this almost kind of default to, well, if we just treat everyone respectfully, and if I have a good yeah. relationship yeah. with my black and brown brother or sister, and we are just nice to one another, mm -hmm. then everything, then we're good. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that sort of relegates the conversation uh, a narrow lens, if you will, mm -hmm. and relegates the conversation to the personal and interpersonal level. We could flip that to gender and it would be like me saying, hey, as long as Sharon and I are good. And, and, and I have checked this out, y'all, I've proven I'm a good one. Yes. Then the sexism thing is, 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 is over. It's, it's yeah. fine. Right. But what we know is, is we know that by policy, by narrative and story, by the yeah. manipulation of resources, that this is actually, as, as John Powell, small j, small p at the Haas Institute would say, this is in our land. Yeah. And yeah. so I think one of the really difficult things, particularly for white folks, sometimes for black and brown businesses, but less, there is this thing about seeing it from a structural standpoint and understanding that the way race and racism are operating are in broad and diffuse ways, not in isolated individual ways. Sterling and Melvin are doing their work here to talk about supremacy and I think it's worth a second look at the definition before we let them continue. So. Supremacy is the belief that white people constitute a superior race and should therefore dominate society, typically to the exclusion or detriment of other racial and ethnic groups, in particular, black, indigenous, people of color, and to an extent, Jewish people. So having said that, Melvin is about to bring in some interesting ideas on how the effects of supremacy have taken hold of the imagination of, of the American people and serves to influence so much of our social interactions. Here is their proof that supremacy has been sewn into the fabric of our nation. And as you listen, think of ways that you can see supremacy at work around you. Yeah, you know, now that you've explained that, I've also often seen that same thing with black and brown folk who inhabit white dominant spaces. Mm -hmm. Right. Where where, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of excuse making that happens like, you know, uh, 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 around, you know, this is my friend and, and, and I know they don't feel that way towards me. Right. Mm -hmm. Or I know. And, and, and there's this there's this this blindness that start that that develops to the structural ways that inequity functions 
not just around how we feel or don't feel towards one another. That's one of the reasons I find it so deeply problematic that every time some, some new crisis happens, right? Like we're, we're dealing with yet another slave, right? But one of the things that happens, one of the, one of the go-to moves that happens every time something like this happens and another life is taken is folks start talking about, we need to, we need to, uh, we need to do something about hate. We need to do something about hate as if the sum total of this thing is wrapped up in how people feel towards other people. Sharon, what are some of the things that you've noticed that people struggle to see on the front end of an equity journey? One of the things I think that you na that often navigating with white folks, it's certainly, if I'm honest, has been true in my journey, is that you go from a place of, of unconsciousness to consciousness. And the first act is to do come come to that space in a place of deep shame and guilt and oftentimes what happens when you're operating from a frame of of overwhelming shame is that it's circular you can only see yourself in it it's very navel gazing and so what what happens is that people can't actually are not it's not that they can't it's that they're not actually seeing the ways in which how they're reacting in the world, their decisions, how they're maneuvering is actually having an effect on other people. And so there's something about that work of, you know, we need to listen to other folks. We need to hear other stories. We need to understand how actions actually have impact as opposed to how am I feeling right now? And that I think is like, that's, but that's often one of the things that I notice is that people don't know they don't really, they, they don't know how to navigate that feeling of overwhelming guilt and shame. And so often it's like that, that um, what are the three, the three things that we do? We like flight, what, what are they? It's like, um, somebody help me out here. Fight, flight, flight or freeze. Or freeze. And that that's often what you'll see. And so it's like, a, like I'm going to have to, I have to run away from this. I can't deal with it. I'm just going to go turn on Netflix to what I'm used to and just not even get in there. Or I'm gonna fight back. I'm gonna like, I'm gonna resist at every turn. Um, or I'm gonna freeze and just shut up and think that I never, like I can never even enter into the conversation. And so it's like not actually really engaging. And in that it's not actually seeing that there's somebody else in the room with you. It's like, it becomes this, like, I think we really have to pay attention to the navel gazing phenomena of how, what, like where white people get stuck. The debate over intentions is one of the things that keeps us stuck and prevents us from actually going on this journey together, right? Like the debate over intentions, because we can argue intentions all day. I didn't mean to, right? Like uh, we can do that all day long. Whereas the need for equity is not about what you meant. It's not about intentions. It's about impact. Those are the things that need to be corrected. And that is the work. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I have a, I have a um, spiritual director and she uses this phrase that I like a lot, which is the stale, the, the stale taste of the familiar. And this that sense Ooh, of, I like that. When, isn't that good? It's like yeah. the, the recognizing of, wow, 
I'm repeating the same way of being over and over and over again. I'm getting the same outcomes, the same, it's having the same impact. And do I want to do this? Does this, does this how I want to live my life? And so it's like really kind of like challenging that sense of just that familiar, like doing the same thing again and again and again. Impact is what we're talking about, right? Like impact is what we're talking about. I want to be mindful of the fact that part of the reason we did this work was because we wanted to center Black and Brown and Indigenous folk. And I'm realizing that in answering that question, that first question, we talked about what white folk struggle with up front, struggle to see up front. And in truth, we've been talking about what Black folk sometimes struggle to see, like they struggle to see their, their, their right to joy, and they struggle to see their right to anger, and they struggle, like we've been talking about those things all along. So that, that hasn't been lost. But I don't want to, in this moment, miss the opportunity to talk about some of the things that Black and Brown and Indigenous folk worldwide some of the struggles that, that, that may exist on the front end to see some of the structural ways in which things, in which things impact us. What, what comes to mind? I think that there is a pretty perverse incentive there, right? Because if you are the person who says, well, I don't see it, then you have all of a sudden all of this access, yes. right? Into yes. white spaces. Um, or like white controlled spaces. So I, I try to talk about this a lot, but the idea of power being proximal, right? Like like white people have privilege, but people of color can have proximal privilege that's kind of given temporarily if they are people of color who are cops, just as an example, right? Um, so there is Absolutely. some privilege there, right? You were given mm -hmm. some amount of authority, but it's mainly to like, weaponize whatever power you're given against other people of color um and i think that this plays out in some really weird ways especially when you are looking at kind of like the political space that we are in right now where if you are a person of color who's willing to say horrible things about black people right or horrible things about immigrants coming across the border like mm -hmm. you can make a lot of money doing that Absolutely. um so that is like that, that concerns me a lot <laughs> um, because I, I definitely can see that temptation, right? If you, if you're trying to pay your bills, like I totally see how that would be tempting. Be like, okay, I can be that guy. And I think that this is a way that whiteness kind of operates on our bodies, right? On our lives and our circumstances is that, you know, whiteness doesn't want to do the dirty work again, right? Like if we can be the ones policing people of color, they're like, okay, yeah, that's great. Like you do that, that's your job. And, you know, again, you kind of get this feeling of power, but as soon as you step out of line, it's, it's gone. You're pushed far enough away that you no longer have access to that proximal power and privilege that was at play there. Um, so it's a very convenient I, divine conquer strategy. Yes. Right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's exactly why it exists. Right. And it's existed for on this continent it's existed for centuries at this point right to try to weaponize turning people against one another in whatever space that is yeah i, I agree with what tori is saying I, you know I, I i think if i could what i would imagine 
that white supremacy culture has in its budget, how much it will invest. <laughs> budget and line it. item. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> how much it will invest. How much does it take to get an overseer, right? Mm-hmm. To invest in that, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and sort of the flip side of that is either, either an overseer or how much does it take to make sure that we invest and we get that black or brown person who is going to fiend and perform happiness, mm-hmm. right? As mm-hmm. if there is nothing going on, right? Like I think I think investments are made in that, mm-hmm. right? To, to, to sort of to sort of get those actors mm-hmm. in the system to be able to point to um, and say, you know, well, they're actually you know doing it right. Like what's wrong with you all, right? So I think I think I think that's right. I think that that is. I think that the system of white supremacy culture. I think it actually perpetuates. You know, it is perpetuated based on having actors like that. The other thing I'll say about what, so I've seen, um, you know, black and brown folks struggle with, is on the one hand, it feels to me that it is the work of white folks to build one and try it on, right? A lens. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, talking in broad terms for black and brown folks, is to trust the one you already have, mm. right? So, mm. so, so you've got this thing that's like actually built in. Mm-hmm. And so part of the work that I see for you know, black and brown folks is like, trust that. Like, yeah. yes, you did feel that. Yes, yeah. you did see that. Yes, they did say that. Like, trust the lens that you already have. Mm-hmm. And so I think that a lot of times, Melvin, there's some work around that. Why? Mm. Because of the way in which these messages and these experiences have been internalized. Yeah. Sometimes it might be for protection, you know, and, and, and so not wanting to speak that we're seeing what we're seeing and we're hearing what we hear, we're hearing. All, there are all manner of reasons, but I think part of the work in this is to try to pr- provide this space, which is one of the reasons we're talking about this pre-work is to be in those spaces whereas black and brown folks, we can kind of talk about those things. Uh, we can, we can be, be vulnerable about those things. We yeah. can name those things. We can wrestle with them and so on and so forth. There is an investment made in making sure those things are the stories of a lot of people. There's an investment made in pitting people together. There is against each other. It's not just a metaphor, my brother. Like that investment is in scholarships that take little black boys and little black girls, little brown boys and little brown girls out of, out of, out of their, 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 and let me not, let me not forget all, all, all my queer, queer siblings, right? Like take them out of their communities and say, oh, you're smarter than the rest of them. Why don't you go over here across town to this place where you aren't going to have the same support, but you'll get a better education, right? And That's so important, Melvin. Wow, you just you just hit on something that kind of is blowing my mind right now because there is culturally within whiteness, there is this... Um, this conflation of uh, consumption and approval, right? Like we are seen as commodities. People of mm-hmm. color are so often seen as as commodities, as as things to be consumed. I, I had a conversation with someone earlier in the pandemic, and um, they, you know, they live 
in the States, they live stateside and they went to Hawaii in the middle of the pandemic for like over a week. Uh, it, it was a white person just to clarify. <laughs> and, um, this is, you know, I try to be really cognizant of, of things that are going on. And I know the, the, the protests, uh, in Hawaii specifically with, uh, in regards to this, um, telescope that they want to build, that they want to take this sacred land for, right? So a lot of us have been following that. And then it's a very kind of enclosed system. There are not that many people who live in Hawaii. So I, you know, trying to be very cognizant of the fact that like Hawaiians are ex like very explicitly asking us not to go to Hawaii, yes. right? And um, the response that I got was, well, I'm supporting the economy. And it was really interesting. It's like, I can pay to dehumanize you is really where I jumped to that immediately, right? Is if I pay the price, you can be consumed. And that that doesn't matter. Right. As long as I get what I want out of this situation, like if I'm giving you money, that's a fair trade. Wow. Even if it completely, like the US has a horrific history of absolutely decimating indigenous populations already mm. right so just like the colonizer mindset of like i'm gonna go over here i'm gonna do my thing if you get sick like well that's on you um i gave you money goodbye yeah Woo, we laugh to keep from crying this i think that there's something really important um and it's actually honestly a place i struggle with sometimes is the this piece around trust and like and i completely you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm completely with you, Sterling, around when you talked about, um, like, BIPOC folks, there's work to do around the trust. And in white spaces, there's like, you know, you need, a, you need to put on the other, the, a different set of lenses, got to look further. I guess one of the things I've been, I've been wondering about and just curious in your work, um, what when in when other forms of inequity are bubbling up for like let's just let's stay with white folks right now so whether that's poverty or um um uh trans or gender inequities of some sort or learning disabilities or physical disabilities or what 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 have you maybe it's religion but something pops up where there's an where there's an inequity but you're still you're still white bodied and and have white privilege right what's the space of trust how do we how do we navigate trust when it, it within whiteness i'm just curious if you've got thoughts on that one of the things that just comes up for me is I think it's interesting what you said towards the end there about when the supremacist logic is not your logic, right? The reason that's interesting to me, and you're making me think about it right now, is that I have such a hard time separating it. Am I making sense? It, it's like, it's like in the context of the United States of America, Right. We talk about race sort of being this through line that we can look at any disparity, no matter what disparity we're talking about around healthcare or education or earning power, wealth, whatever it is, that through line 
right, there is going to be sort of a, a story around how that is playing out racially every time. It's, it's, it's never going to disappear, right, because of how race is embedded. And so what that makes me think about to your question, uh, Sharon, is that um, I see around race and gender, race and sexual orientation, race and religion, what I see a lot of times is I see the inclination is to bend, whatever it is, is to bend towards whiteness, right? And so what that means is, is that there is uh, the narrative that is lifted up. Um, for example, in my experience, I have seen a lot of white women, right? Even in the midst of that conversation, you know, around, you know, how gender is operating, you know, uh, so on and so forth, uh, this, this sort of, this sort of rate, uh, how gender is operating is that um, there's a conversation about everything, right? Except race, right? It's like an easy, there's this sort of, there's this sort of easy turn towards anything else that we can find. Mm. And so to me, the default, the, what is happening in that default is that that's the rallying around whiteness, right? Mm. Um, whiteness know, as this, in, uh, in part, this impulse to, to remain invisible. Yes. Right, right? Absolutely. like <laughs> no, that's that Tori told right, us no. about. Mm -hmm. that's, that's absolutely right. So, so to me, Sharon, in terms of like, I believe like, you know, kind of garnering trust and connecting across these different lines and that sort of thing. That is not to say that within community of whiteness, as I understand it, that, you know, their conversations are not going on across all of these lines of identity. But I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's always harder to hang on, right, to, what is what is their accountability and what is their work to do around race which is like connected to it all to how patriarchy is working out is 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 operating you know to how uh i think the you know the oppression of 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 queer folks is happening and all of that kind of stuff because i think it comes out of the same frames you know of kind of this dominant mindset which is deeply steeped in whiteness so I hope that makes sense, but I think I think that that that's what I see happening a lot. And Tori, I've I've spoken too much, so you. And before you jump in, Tori, let let me clarify if 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 I can where you were going, Sharon. Um, <laughs> um, Sterling had previously mentioned this idea of BIPOC folk needing to learn to trust their equity lens. And your question came out of, am I right to think that you were talking about, is there ever a time that, that, that white folk have an equity lens around something else that they too can trust that might help inform just their visions of equity? Would yeah, you, that's, that's well said. Mm -hmm. oh. That's well said, yeah. 
and I can I just say I really I, I feel like it's sort of like I think about it as kind of a decoy theory is like I've seen this happen so many times where the thing that is I, I hear you it's like the thing that is most uncomfortable to hold and stay with for the longevity is is the conversation around race and so often I've I, I've been in I've literally been in spaces where um because there were too many black folk in the room that was a Christian room, a, a person chose to just go off about the fact that we had too many Christians in the room. And mm -hmm. so it was like, oh, so then, you know, we're acting out Christian supremacy. And in this case, it was just, it, like it was really slippery. And there, there was something that you could say about that. It wasn't like that that was not insignificant in terms of the kind of multicultural or multi-religious space we were trying to create. But there was this, but there was also this like decoy. There was this way of, it's just a little too uncomfortable to hold this. So let me find the other thing. So here that, I see that happen quite a bit. <laughs> I just want to pause here and break down this term Sharon used. Earlier in the podcast, we discussed supremacy, but what is Christian supremacy? I'm going to lean on a definition by our friends at Soulforce. Christian supremacy is the connective tissue among different systems of violence and domination that use the language, capital, and power of Christianity to seek their ends. Christian supremacy is not new. And calling it out recognizes that the struggles against white supremacy, capitalism, and neocolonization are intricately tied to how certain sectors and expressions of Christianity are driven by power instead of justice. It has been put into service for hundreds of years, especially in the United States and with the United States business partners, which is really disappointing, I know. But just think on that definition. In what ways do you see Christian supremacy at work around you? Take a moment to jot it down. Okay, let's get back to the show. Tori has something important to say. Yeah, I think that that is very true. And I think that you know, that's absolutely the way that whiteness functions, right? It's kind of like this slippery thing that as soon as as soon as someone is become as soon as a white person or someone with white privilege becomes uncomfortable um that sort of becomes the most important thing that is happening in the room um and which is again like <laughs> for people of color who have been in rooms where a white woman has started crying for example and taken up all of the air in the room because everybody's going to stop what they're doing to make sure that white women are okay right? That's just the cultural expectation that we have because we, that's the narrative that we have built for ourselves for centuries is that white women are fragile and must be taken care of at all costs, right? Um, it's, yeah, it, I mean, it's kind of traumatizing as a person of color to be in a space like that where all of a sudden it's like, you're dropping everything because this woman is crying and we are like, you don't even pay attention to our protests unless we're burning something down. Like, what is that about, right? Um, and, oh my gosh, it's just, yeah, it can be, it's it's so tough to be in those spaces um, because just because white people come in with this expectation of I am trustworthy, right? Like I am here, I am white, ergo, I am trustworthy. And 
then it's kind of jarring for them to go like to realize like oh oh nobody in this space actually like just implicitly trusts me because I am here like okay <laughs> which you know as a person with a nervous system like yeah that can feel very jarring as well to go into a space and then realize that you don't have the privilege that you expected you would have in that space um but I, I just yeah I really struggle with this idea of everything needs to be dropped to make sure that <laughs> white people are comfortable or that white people can find an example in the moment of this is another thing that you could think about as a way to build your equity lens, right? Like think, like I was talking about earlier, like think about a time that you were bullied as a child, right? Or like maybe you had some other kind of traumatic experience in, in childhood or young adulthood, like, and kind of go back to that. Like, yes, it is important to build empathy, but um, again, like, your intentions of I would like to be an ally um, can very easily hijack like a, a bigger, much more important conversation than just like how you're feeling right now. So, yeah, that that business of of uh, empathy being the end of all things mm -hmm. is, is maybe another one of those things that that you begin to understand differently. As you, as you as you try to practice equity and understand yes it is if it is useful then 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 feel right like and be in someone else's shoes i, I all for it right like yes yep. Yep. right grow that but this idea of we cannot act until we feel we cannot act until we 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 empathize is where we where 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 a thing can be derailed right because it can be held hostage right like just around yep. just like intentions can keep us spinning our wheels right and spinning around in circles so too the need to feel more can keep us spinning spinning and standing in place and the goal is to journey yeah it's this thing about you know um kind of navigating kind of multiple marginalizations, right? Um, and even as white folk, you know, who are kind of navigating those different spaces, not because of their race, but because of other identities, that the thing to be careful of is that there is a way to build some kind of uh, understanding, right? Some kind, some level of empathy, but it's, it's, it's the thing to be careful of is to make, make that experience equivalent to, right? <laughs> what someone who is black identified or identified as a person of color, right? Because, you know, there's a way in which that kind of erases, you know, that part of a black or brown person's experience, right? So in other words, you know, if we're talking about how things are going down with, you know, um, women. We gotta talk about the difference in black and white women or women of color and white women, or, you know, uh, the violence against, you know, the queer community and yes. LGBTQ folks. We mm -hmm. gotta talk about black trans women and yes. how that is very different. Right. So this, this whole thing about kind of identifying and having some sense, right, of living kind of on those margins for white folks is a real thing. And the caution is, is don't make false equivalencies with the experience that is deeply rooted in blackness and brownness that is a unique, unique experience around all of these identities, right? You know, I, I deeply appreciate these things that you see being willing to detail 
these things that you've seen folk have a have a hard time seeing on the front end. And so now I'd, I'd love to kind of shift gears a little bit if we can. And 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 think about what have you found uh, that that may be useful, uh, useful as let's say to extend our metaphor a bit, useful as corrective lenses to help people begin to see and understand these things we've just talked about as they do their equity work, as they begin their equity work, what are some of the useful lenses that we can offer? I think listening is a lens that white folks are frequently not given. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> right? Like listening and believing our experiences. The listening and the believing and, and, and sometimes, you know, there's the, I'm willing to believe, but you have to prove it to me. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, like I frequently tell something else that I frequently tell white folks is I'm like, you need to audit. Like if you're on social media, you need to audit the social media accounts you follow. You need to audit, like, who are the journalists you're following? Are you following mostly white journalists? Like that's not going to cut it. Right. Again, being in a space being in a culture that has built on white supremacy and then only receiving input from other white people intentionally or unintentionally is not a neutral thing. Like that is not a morally neutral act, you know, looking at like, okay, who am I following? Um, who am I listening to? Like, where's my time being spent? Um, you know, are you going out and actually finding people who don't have to filter themselves it, like, and this obviously goes back historically to this idea of, of black people could not speak for themselves in court. They had to have a white person speak on their behalf because our mm -hmm. word wasn't, didn't have any value. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And it just has gotten pulled into 2021 of like, yeah, maybe you experienced racism, but I didn't see it. So meh. Right. It's just, it's this dictating of reality mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is just, it's another function of whiteness is I get to decide what is real, I get to decide what you decide what you experienced. And if I don't validate it, then it's not a thing that happens. So Melvin, about uh, 10 years ago, at least, I'm talking to a friend uh, or colleague of mine who probably at the time is a late 60s white gentleman. And we're having this conversation. And uh, somehow, uh, I'm sure I started it, but somehow it got into a conversation about race. And um, see, you always started something. Always starts. <laughs> always in the middle of it. <laughs> um, and so, it, you know, it got to this point where I, I said something, but and I don't even remember what I said. But you know, he said, you know, uh, Sterling, that is fascinating because. You know, I just don't see you, you know, I don't, when I see, I don't see you as a black person, right? <laughs> and he thought that right, was a compliment. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. I don't think of you, you know, and he said, I, I just don't get up, you know, I, I just don't think about race all the time like that. And I said, well, you know, that's telling because I think about it every day, right? What's important about that story, though, is this whole notion of colorblindness 
and colorblindness from the standpoint, particularly as that phenomenon plays out when white folks say that they don't see color, what they also are saying is they don't see whiteness, right? It's not mm. only that they don't see you, Melvin, mm. right, as Black, and me, and Tories, they don't see whiteness. One of the things about a corrective lens mm -hmm. for white folks is to realize that they have race. Because what was created was not the category that was imposed on you, you and me. What was created was whiteness. That's what was created. Mm. And then all of these other things sort of morph out of that when you need an other to, in order yeah. to classify the other, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think one of the things about shaping the corrective lens, certainly for white folks, is understanding that you've got race, right? That you are a racialized being, because that's the portal to at least having a conversation then, if I'm a racialized being, then what does that mean? How does that, and then we can get into the conversation about the benefits, uh, the sister in critical race theory that talked about, I know that's a big bad word these days, y'all, it's critical race theory, but anyway, critical race theory that talked about whiteness as property, right? Yes. So, yes. so, so, so that's, that, that, that's one of the things about the corrective lenses. I, I think kind of the, it's not, no, it's not the flip side, but as I look at the experience of black and brown folks, when we're talking about this lens, once again, trusting the lens that you already have, like trusting that, right? And I think part of that trusting is being able to be in, um, you know, places where um, you can articulate your story, um, uh, particularly to other per persons of color where you all can share. Another thing about this pre-work, Melvin, that's important, to be able to articulate, you know, find language, right? To articulate your story with others, to say it out loud. Dolores Williams helps us, doesn't she? In her book on Sisters in the Wilderness, where she says, you know, naming makes it a thing, right? It, it puts some, it concretizes it, yes, you know? Yes. And so, so I, think, I think part of that for black and brown folks is, is, is being able to name and articulate that, that I think that that helps build that trust, right? That that I'm, I'm not making this up in my head. That this is a real thing, and to be able to have outlets and places to be able to articulate those things, I think is important for the black and brown folks in, in terms of the work. So you know, there's a, so you know, Sterling, there's a there there, there there's a question I've heard you ask before that connects both of those. And that is this simple question of how is race operating in this situation? If you're black and brown, the, the, the ability to ask that question without any sense of shame, without any sense of regret, without any need to cover or to withdraw and to say, to be able to name, I see race operating in these ways. And I see its impact on me in these ways. And then, and then also then the practice for white folk or white passing folk is 
to be able to say that same thing. How is race operating? It's easier for me not to see, but how is it operating? There is this very, very deep connection between whiteness, individualism, the myth of the self-contained um, autonomous individual that is, that, that it, it is, it, it's all encompassing, right? And I think that for white folks, in order to move to consciousness and to trust, you have to be in community. Have to like, you, like because we have That's been taught, yeah. we as white, white folks have been taught um, and have embodied the opposite, which is this, this, this false myth of our own our own superiority and our own our our own isolation, our own individualism. That the way to consciousness has got to be a community way. We cannot do it alone, which is why I think you know, this work started as a um, working with communities of faith. And communities of faith have the potential. They also have very toxic spaces, but they have the potential of being that space where we can come back, where we can practice being in relationship together. And then I just think the other thing I wanna say is, is that um, I think unconsciousness leads to unprocessed trauma in the system. And we see that over and over and over again. And so the work for white folks is, has to be the work around, as Tori said, listening, of listening to different stories, of becoming more conscious. And sometimes, you know, um, white folks love a good diet. And I think that um, one, one thing that I have tried on, and it's actually really made a difference, is have said, like, I'm going to go for a month and I'm not going to read any white authors. I'm only going to read authors of color. Like, I'm just going to try it on for a period of time. It doesn't have to be forever. But it's like to get oriented to listening to different stories is like a really interesting, that's a, like a, a, that can be a very good first step for white folks, I think, to sort of move toward consciousness. And it can be disorienting, but in a, I think in a really good way. That and sort of, I think this piece around like having communities, like beginning to really form communities where you can explore what is the thing that feels like if, because if, if, if to what, to Sterling's point, if like for, for BIPOC communities, it's trusting that instinct. White folks need to know like how not to trust the instinct, which is a really weird thing to do, to like learn to not trust yourself. And so you gotta have kind of a community around you. It's like, did I read that right? Or like, was that off base? I don't know the difference. I need some help here. Cause I can't, I can't do it on my own. I can't figure it out. I'm not sure if I'm interpreting the signs right, we need help in that. Um, in, 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 in its particular form of community, it's a community of accountability, right? Like, so it's, it's not just right. a bunch of folk who are drowning together in their, in their cluelessness and lack of awareness around stuff, but rather folk who, who, who are holding each other accountable to this, to the equity journey that says we are, we are going to challenge one another to see the things we cannot see, 
right? Yeah. Um, uh, or, or that are hard to see. And, and a lot of times that means that you got to have people at, at different stages of the journey, right? Yeah. Like, like, you know, so I do a lot of this work based in kind of the, the metaphor of 12 steps. And, you know, you, people don't enter into 12 steps without a sponsor, right? Because you need someone, you need the, the communal accountability and you need someone who, 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 who is ahead of you, definitely ahead of you, who can help you, help, can help you by virtue of the fact that they've walked that road. So all of that, for what it's worth, is kind of the, one of the corrective, illustrates one of the corrective lenses that, uh, that I find particularly useful. And that is a story. You, you've all hit on it. We, people need better stories. It's not just that white people need better stories. Black and brown folk need better stories, right? We need better stories. We need not just, not just, we need better tellings of history, right? Where the characters, the main characters aren't all white, right? Um, where the setting isn't the creating of a context that's in service of whiteness, where the conflict isn't always Someone who isn't white is coming to take what's rightfully yours, right, 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 where the plot progresses beyond the triumphalism of, of this kind of supremacist. One group ended up on top of another group. One person ended up on top of another person. We need better tellings of history. We need better news stories that don't just center on, 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 on whiteness. We need better movies and novels, right? We need better stories because it's not just the facts that shape us, right? In fact, sh facts don't shape us, right? It's stories that shape us, that give us our sense of who we are and, where, and, and wh what we can aspire to and where we can go with this thing. And so if, if you do nothing else, don't miss what Tori was saying earlier, right? Like about listening to new podcasts, right? Like get some better stories in your life, stories that speak of the equitable future that we imagine possible or that we, we are saying is possible. Because if you do that, then achieving that equitable future is all the more possible. So for the last time, this is Tori Williams Douglas, Sharon Groves, and Sterling Freeman, and Melvin Bray saying thank you for doing the pre-work with us. Your bags are packed. You are ready for your equity journey, and we wish you well. Be good to yourselves and to others. Thanks for tuning in with us. There is a lot to think about, and so we've packed you a bag to help you in the coming days. As you reflect, consider watching Fruitvale Station by Black Panther director Ryan Coogler. We will continue to add resources to your backpack with each episode. You can also find the links in the podcast show notes or on the pre-work shelf in our Bible app. The pre-work is a product of Being in Relationship, a program of Auburn Seminary. It has been edited and produced by Crystal Cheatham from Our Bible App.